Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well-being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Today, I welcome Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist, international trainer, and sought-out speaker on acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion. We will discuss her work in acceptance and commitment therapy and how to use these tools to become more psychologically flexible. I'm Diana Hill, and I'm a clinical psychologist in Santa Barbara. I work with individuals, but also with corporations in helping folks become more psychologically flexible. And I specialize in something called ACT or acceptance and commitment training. Amazing. So before we jump into more specifics, I'd love if you could just explain what psychologically flexible means, as well as how ACT plays a role in that. Sure. Well, psychological flexibility is a term that actually is it's a cluster of six different approaches to uh, living in the world. And when you do all six of them together, you're considered psychologically flexible. And it's been researched for over 40 years now. It was uh, first sort of described by someone by the name of Stephen Hayes, Kelly and Kelly Wilson and Kirk Strassel. And the six components that make up your psychological flexibility are being able to be open and accepting, to be present in the here and now, uh, to be able to step back from your thoughts and not get so entangled in them, to be able to take perspective on your own self stories, to know your values, what's important to you, and to take committed action with your behavior towards those values. And when you do all six of those together, they make up your psychological flexibility. And it's associated with all sorts of things. When they look at it uh, in research, it's associated with better parenting practices. People are using it with Olympic athletes. People are using it for health concerns like um, cancer or chronic pain, as well as mental health concerns like anxiety and depression. So it's being used in a lot of different ways because it's sort of basically how to be uh, a psychologically well human being. Yeah, and one of the six approaches that really stood out to me is stepping back from your thoughts. And I've heard of this term cognitive diffusion before, which is, you know, looking at your thoughts instead of coming from them. And I'm curious if you could kind of expand on this concept and how that has played a role in becoming psychologically flexible. Well, for a long time, psychology was uh, sort of evidence-based psychology was focused on changing thoughts, right? So uh, reframing your thought or identifying dysfunctional thoughts. Even when I was in my PhD training, they would give us this list that we were supposed to use with our clients where you'd identify like that's black and white thinking or that's, uh, you know, having dichotomous thinking, that's irrational thinking. But with ACT, we take a little bit of a different approach. And you're right, this word cognitive diffusion is the word that we use when we're talking about how we relate to our thoughts. And it maps much more onto, uh, I would say, contemplative approaches as well. So what cognitive diffusion is, is first it's a made up word, which is perfect. If you, uh, I wrote the book ACT Daily Journal, and in it, we have a whole chapter on cognitive diffusion. Every time we wrote that word, it would have, it would spell check us because it's, it's a made up word, which is nice because our thoughts are actually often made up and not necessarily true. And diffusion, if you think about something that's fused to itself, like a piece of metal, it's fused to another piece of metal, it's stuck 
a lot of times we get stuck in our thinking. We believe our thoughts to be true. We follow them like they're orders. We have rules for ourselves, And a lot of these things are like rules that maybe we took on 10 years ago and we're still doing them, even don't even question whether they're helpful or not. So defusion is getting unstuck. And getting unstuck is your ability to look at your thoughts as something that is passing through your mind that may be helpful to you, may not be helpful to you. And then you get to choose whether or not you're going to listen to that thought. So with cognitive diffusion, there's a lot of different techniques that we do in ACT. All of them, um, some of them are kind of funny. Some of them are just even the act of just, um, I did, a, I recently led a group of therapists in Arizona where I had the therapists write down their thoughts on sticky notes about themselves in a session. So like, what do you think about yourself when you're in session with a client? And also, what do you think about your clients? And, you know, therapists can be judgmental of themselves. They, they think like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a bad job or this person doesn't understand me or I'm a terrible therapist. And they can have judgmental thoughts about their clients, right? And so I had them write down all these thoughts, just one thought per sticky note. And they had these piles of sticky notes around them. Then I asked them to take the sticky notes and put them all over their body and then walk around the room. And it was a little mortifying at first for folks to, to think about, you know, like, ah, someone's going to see what I'm thinking. But then it was quite liberating because the reality is we all have sticky thoughts. We have judgmental thoughts. We have unhelpful thoughts. We have shame thoughts. We have anxiety thoughts. But when you can just notice that they're just a thought and not necessarily hold them right in front of your face or not get distracted by them, then you have a little more food freedom to walk about in your life. And that's really what cognitive diffusion is all about. Yeah, so a big approach to this that, you know, we use in the yoga community is meditating, right? Becoming like an observer to those thoughts by focusing on the breath. So I'd love to hear from your perspective how meditation has helped your clients with this as well. I don't always teach meditation in therapy. And I, um, and actually a lot of people would consider ACT a mindfulness-based approach that doesn't prescribe meditation, but I'm a big long-term meditator. And I do work with meditation with clients. I kind of think about it as uh, not everyone needs to go to the gym to become strong or flexible, but it helps, right? Or not, not everyone needs to do a yoga practice. There's many ways to work with the body. And so meditation is one way to work with the mind uh, of learning how to observe our mind and how to focus the mind and how to become also more flexible in our attention. But I, you know, there's many different forms of meditation that I personally use and that I will sometimes work with my clients uh, to, to learn. In the very simple practice of cognitive diffusion, it's being able to, yes, we can focus on our, our breath as an anchor, but there's also an open expansion type of meditation where you can also begin to expand your awareness to your full experience and notice sensations rise up, become intense, kind of shift and change and go away. Notice thoughts rise up, shift and change and go away. Notice um, emotions come and go. And I think that that type of practice is very helpful because often what happens out in the world when we're not cultivating uh, that type of open awareness we just get really reactive. So an emotion shows up and we act on it or a thought shows up and we follow it or a um, sensation shows up and we try and make it go away. And if you have the capacity to sit with and be open to 
these experiences and see that they will change whether you act on them or not, it gives you a little bit more flexibility and a little more choice in what you decide to do. Yeah. And I've seen in your book and um, from your website and other content that uh, self-compassion plays a really large role in this process. Um, so I'd love to discuss that and what that looks like when somebody is practicing cognitive diffusion. You could have self-compassion with cognitive diffusion in the sense of having self-compassion that you're human and your your mind is going to do like crazy stuff and, and your mind having self-compassion that maybe some of the thoughts that you have about yourself or thoughts that you have about others aren't really your fault. Like you may have developed them from your early childhood experiences. You may have been influenced by society. You may have a brain that is particularly sticky, like a brain that um, has a tendency towards OCD, right? More intrusive type of thinking. So there's that, there's that level of self-compassion, but I really like also with working with folks on developing a compassionate mind, which comes from the work of Paul Gilbert, who's at, um, he's in the UK and from the Compassionate Mind Foundation. And developing a compassionate mind is maybe watering some different seeds in your mind and a different perspective, a perspective of someone who kind of wants the best for you, somebody who's encouraging, uh, bringing warmth and care and um, courage to your experience. And that is a, sort of like another mind state that we can cultivate in many different ways. One way would be if you diffuse from maybe self-critical thoughts and you turn your mind to more compassionate ones. Um, another way is just by being able to turn, um, it's almost like turn towards yourself with a, a caring heart as opposed to, um, you know, always trying to fix things, make things go away, avoid things, but actually turn towards your suffering with warmth. And that really is the distinction of when, when they're looking at what is compassion, both from a contemplative perspective, as well as from a research perspective, is it has that key component of being able to acknowledge suffering and then turn towards it with the intention to alleviate it, whether that's suffering in somebody else or that's suffering in yourself. Yeah, definitely. And um, I've seen you talk to a lot about this concept of unhealthy striving um, and a lot of overproductivity that is bred in our culture. And I'm curious what role self-compassion could play in that too for somebody who may be struggling in that space. I got interested in striving um, probably, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And part of what really interests me about it is that there's a lot of folks that have drive and have sort of this energy to go out in the world and achieve things. And I don't think that's necessarily inherently bad. Uh, I see myself as one of those people. I love to create things. I love to grow things. I have, I have a lot of drive just to um, be active in my life. But that drive, when it's not harnessed in a way that is compassionate, can cause a lot of suffering. And I've experienced that in my own life. I Part of the reason why I came went into my work as a psychologist was that I experienced anorexia, which is like striving gone bad, right? Like I was a high achiever to the nth degree and um, doing everything that society told me to do to be happy. And I was miserable, right? So striving can lead us into places where 
we are harmful to ourselves, perfectionism, overachieving, overworking, things like that. But it can also be harmful when we become really one, one-minded and self-focused and are not striving for things that are looking at collective well-being. And so compassion, which can flow three ways, right? So, so we can give compassion to others, we can receive compassion from others, and then we can have compassion for ourselves. When we take compassion and we add it to the equation of striving, to the equation of, of folks that want to be active and do good in the world, then it's pretty amazing what people can achieve. And we see that, you know, we see it with people that are um, really putting their efforts to more of a, um, I guess, maybe more of an interconnected goals. So that's where I see compassion as being helpful and it's a different mindset. It's not a um, intention to get to some point. It's more about um, how to be of service and take care of yourself along the way. Yeah, I definitely relate to this concept of unhealthy striving. Um, and it's, it's, I've seen it show up in a lot of anxiety in my life. And even when I'm doing it in a way that is, for others or for a greater good, you know, like by teaching, uh, I still notice that coming up, that anxiety and that overwhelm and uh, lack of taking care of myself. And I'm curious if you found that balance of, um, you know, striving and contributing to the world, but not overstepping, overdoing it for yourself. I think the question of balance is always an interesting one because I, because as, as with yoga, it's like, do you ever really find your balance? Like when, when are you really <laughs> yeah. in balance? No, you're yeah. always wobbling. You're even if whatever balance pose you're in, you're wobbling. Right. So mm-hmm. I would say I, I have found my wobbles. Um, and I know, I know how to wobble better <laughs> than I used to. I used to be like fall flat on my face. Uh, so <laughs> I, um, and, and it evolves, right. Because as I do different things, I'm just, I'm just constantly learning. I have learned where to put my energy more effectively i've learned how to tune into myself and ask is this a is this a yes or this is is this a no and to put those pauses in place and then what are the places that are less fulfilling to me even though they look good on paper and maybe doing less of those because i'm about living in my life more these days i'm about like sort of hopefully what it what it looks like uh, achievement wise sometimes those line up but not always it sounds like you are just very in tune with your needs and wants, which is, you know, takes a lot of work to get to that place. And I'm curious, what is the process for someone who maybe isn't yet so aware of what their their body or mind is really asking for? One of the first skills that I'll work with with clients is the skill of when I in, when I out. And I, I learned the name of it from Anita Johnson. She wrote the book, Eating in the Line of the Moon. And she writes all about myth and metaphor and food. And, um, but you know, this is just something I heard her say at one point, you got to keep one eye in one eye out, but I've developed it over time to what, like, what does that actually really mean? And developing the skill, you know, we live in a world of a lot of two eyes out. So everything is drawing our attention outside of us. And in doing so we've, we've lost track. I mean, even everything from, you know, even like our Apple watches, right. That are telling us when to breathe as opposed to listening to our own body's need for a long, slow breath, right? Or our hunger and our fullness or 
our need to, um, we have something called an ultradian rhythm, different than circadian rhythm, which happens once a day, ultradian rhythms happen throughout our day. There's these like moments where you just have this low energy or you feel a little bit irritable or you feel a little restless. And if you have one eye in to pay attention to what's happening inside of you, just, just sort of checking in while you have one eye out in the world and you kind of toggle between those two, then you can start to respond to it. And then you can start to collect some data on yourself. Like on the days when I notice that around 11 o'clock, I have that low energy feeling and I go up and I just push through it and I answer emails versus the days that I go out and I, my office is up in the sort of Riviera era area of Santa Barbara. And I go out and have a little chicken coop and I walk by the garden and I open up the chicken door and then I walk back. My next hour feels different, right? So you can start to use yourself as a bit of a science experiment, you know, like little mini, um, if I check in with myself and I do this, what happens? If I check in with myself and I do that, what happens? And that's just simple skill of one eye in and one eye out throughout your day will do wonders. There's big one eye ins that we can do, like take a yoga class or start a journal practice or have a meditation, you know, practice. And all of those, I think, are really powerful and important tools as well. But early on, sometimes that can feel like too much. And for some people, the reality of their lives is that they they don't have the capacity to do that. But maybe if you um, are just walking to class and you check in with yourself one eye in as you go for your walk and then you get to class and you're kind of two eyes out again, that might be helpful. Yeah, I love this idea of taking a pause. I think it's so important. And I really try to give those spaces of stillness and silence in my classes. And uh, this notion, you know, comes from I've learned about a lot of this from my studies in Hinduism and Buddhism and how much they value this idea of being still um, and being with ourselves, getting to really know ourselves. So I'm curious um, how you feel Eastern philosophy has informed some of your practices as a therapist. Well, I think um, so in my 20s in the year 2000 I went to Plum Village to um, when Thich Nhat Hanh was still uh, alive and this was before I went to graduate school my dad was my parents were Buddhist and my dad was um, very kind of involved with Thich Nhat Hanh he was you know would go there in the summers and when I was 20 I went there for the first time and I think I experienced something there when you talk about stillness that was different than just stillness. It was about how to be in my day without it always being on the edge of the next thing. Like how to actually, you know, it's like, like in yoga when you're moving from one pose to the next, there's, there is something that happens between the poses, right? There's like a transition, right? And, or mm -hmm. even sometimes when you're in a pose, you're thinking about the next pose or you're in um, this moment thinking about the next moment. And something that I, um, I think I saw and experienced in his presence was this is it. Like there isn't, there isn't a next thing. This is it. Um, and then this summer, my, this last summer, my family, I took my 
so the first time I went with at the time he was my partner, but he's now my husband. And then the summer we um, took our kids, my nine-year-old and my 13-year-old back to Plum Village, which is Tignahunt's monastery in Southern France. And I realized again, or saw again, that this experience of this is it is, is very much not only like a, um, a relief because you can be in this moment and live more fully in this moment. It's an honoring of what we have because Thich Nhat Hanh had died and they had, um, they had made, when he had had his stroke, they had made this, uh, they had paved his walking meditation in Upper Hamlet. So he would always go on this walking meditation, but they paved it because he needed to be in a wheelchair. And along the, along the path, they had hung all these really beautiful, long um, signs of his calligraphy. And one of those signs was, this is it. And I, when we did our big walk, our big, would be like 700 people all walking through this very slow walk on this walking meditation through his path. And that sign showed up and I had my emerging teenager and nine-year-old boy with me on this walk. I realized, yeah, this is it. It's not, it doesn't get much better than this. And so that's the, for me, it's more like there's stillness, but in my life right now, there's not, there's not always a lot of stillness. Like I'm going to, after this, go pick up a kid and take them to a baseball thing and then pick up another kid and then go make dinner and but being able to be present in that and keep the one eye in and the one eye out and feel the um, the beauty of being alive and the honor of being alive, then to me, that's um, really the practice. Yeah, that reminded me of, uh, I spoke with Nick Stein last week, the author of Mindfulness as a Second Language, and we brought up this idea of being instead of doing. And it sounds so simple, right, to just exist. But, you know, with our culture and everything so fast paced and constantly being distracted with phones and friends and family and responsibilities, it's hard. It's really hard. So what do you offer to people who are struggling with that and can't seem to to take that step to just be and appreciate that present moment? Well, I think we can be while we're doing. <laughs> That's the first thing. Um <laughs> I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in that. Like, uh, and I think that's very much because of the lineage of Thich Nhat Hanh, that he was very much, he was, he was, he, he was always, he was often doing something, but he was present in his doing. So I think we can, we can practice that. One is as a psychologist, I look at environmental factors as well. Right. So what, what are mm -hmm. some of the things that are distracting you from being while doing and having some, we do need to have some boundaries and some um, environmental controls around technology. Uh, everything from, you know, just plugging it in in a different spot when you're going to bed or not having it in the same room with you if um, it's challenging to be engaged in a conversation. They did a, an interesting study where they had folks go out to dinner in groups of groups of friends. And I think they were like, groups of five that were at dinner tables and ha that randomized and half of the people had phones at the table and then the other half didn't have phones at the table and just having your phone at the table not even engaging on your phone but just having your phone at the table the folks that had it were reported feeling more bored and less less satisfied with the conversation right so 
the, you know, I'm not anti-phone, but I do think it, it does impact our ability to, um, you know, connect sometimes. So looking at that, looking at, you know, be, be an adult and figure out what kind of boundaries you're going to put on your technology and be responsible with that. And there's lots of ways in which our technology has things built in that we can, uh, work on with that. And then I also think it is a, it is a habit and like any habit, it strengthens with practice. So if you make some intentions around a few things a day that you're going to be fully present in, um, for me, I have a, a habit that I've developed over a number of years, which is when somebody um, walks into a room, whether it's a kid or any you know family member or a friend, I always put down whatever I'm doing and I look at them in the, the eyes and I take a breath. And that's, I have it as a habit. It's like, I, I have another habit of whenever I eat, I sit down. I don't eat standing up. And over time, when you do something repetitively and you put intention around it and you have a value that's driving it, it'll become more automatic for you. And you'll reap the benefits of being present because um, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, he would say that mindfulness is the seed and the fruit. So it's, it's the seed that you're planting for your future and it's the fruit that you get to harvest right now and enjoy the benefits because being present in your life is a really magnificent thing. It's it's um, a very precious gift that we're alive. Yeah, I think it's really important that you brought up how value drives these choices, right? And especially when it comes to setting boundaries, how we decide to set boundaries can be based a lot off of our personal values. So what is some, how can people begin to better understand and be comfortable with their own values for someone that may be newer to this process? Yes. So values is one of those core processes and psychological flexibility. And it's actually, I think one of the things that sets apart ACT from other types of approaches, there's a big emphasis on values. And oftentimes when I start working with folks, the most common thing that people will do is say things like, I value my health or I value my relationships or I value um, planet earth and environmentalism, right? Or I value social justice. But what I, you know, in ACT, what we're really talking about is those are domains, your health, social justice, um, the environment. How is it that you show up that demonstrates what you value in those domains. And if I were to like take a video camera of you from this morning until today, until now, what would I see that you're doing that shows your values, like with your hands and your feet and your voice? And what would I see that you're doing that maybe is out of alignment with your values? Because just like how we talked about like the balancing is um, a wobble, Living your values is a wobble. We're constantly in and out of balance. Every moment we have sort of a, a choice of if I'm going to choose my values and, and act in a way that lines up with the type of person that I want to be in the world here, or maybe we make a choice that's more about like, I'm going to avoid something uncomfortable or I'm going to do what's easier. And that's, you know, no judgment on that as much as you get another opportunity to wibble, wobble your way back into your values again. So I think of values as sort of um, more of the concrete sort of adverbs and verbs that describe 
how you want to be, how you want to show up, what would make you feel proud of. Um, and they're really unique and chosen for each individual. There's no, you know, they're often think about like favorite colors. Yours may be blue and mine's green and neither one is better than the other. But if I really value greenness, then I may choose some things in my life that demonstrate that value. Yeah, and this is such an interesting topic, especially for college students, because it's a time of really discovering these values, and they're often changing pretty rapidly. So what advice do you have for people, you know, in that stage where it can be often confusing to discover those values? Yeah, well, there's, there's kind of two ways in to values that you can, you can just start to pay attention to. Um, the first way in is uh, what brings you vitality and what motivates you, what feels intrinsically interesting to you. And that's usually an indicator of, um, of some of your values, right? So I was talking with my kids, we wanted to do some um, volunteering over the holiday season. And we were kind of like going through different options. And as soon as I hit on, well, we could go pick mandarin oranges for the for transition house. My little boy, like his eyes lit up and he's like, oh yeah, let's do that, right? So it said something about him. Like that sounded way more interesting to him for whatever reason, there's a value there. He loves trees and connecting to nature and being outside. And, you know, um, so paying attention to what's that, oh yeah, that sounds, you know, like that would be fulfilling and satisfying. That's an indicator of your values. But then the flip side, which is also a very interesting thing about values is that what brings you the most pain is often what's most connected to your values. So the things that you regret, I interviewed Daniel Pink, who wrote the book, The Power of Regret. And it's, he studied like, it was like over 2000 people about their regrets. Like, what is it that people regret the most in life? And they ended up being in four different types of categories. So people regret times when they weren't bold. People regret times when they didn't connect with another person. They regret foundational regrets, like not caring for themselves, their body, their finances, and they have moral regrets, right? So feeling that regret, that ping is actually a signpost that indicates to you maybe how you want to be in the world and what is important to you and the relationships that are painful to you. They also point to your values. So either noticing what brings you vitality or noticing what brings you pain. And both of those are arrows that point to what's important to you and maybe some changes that you might want to make or directions you want to head for the day or with your life. And something that really stood out to me is the point of relationships um, contributing to your idea of what your values are. And for some of us who may have relationships that don't align with our values, and we know maybe are harmful in certain ways, but it could be connected to family or someone very close to us that it's harder to put some of those boundaries up. What would you recommend um, for those situations to find that balance of having that person in your life, but also being aware and accepting that they're not living in alignment with what you're looking for. Yeah. Well, that sometimes brings in some other processes, not only values. So values would be some questions around if you have a hard relationship with um, maybe a parent and um, it's, it's painful to be around them. What, what are your values around your own self-respect and your own self-care and 
um, as well as values around, you know, being kind. And so looking at, you know, ways in which you can honor those, but some of the other processes can be really helpful too, like acceptance uh, and, and not acceptance in the sense of like, let someone stay in a relationship that's bad for you. Sometimes it's accepting the discomfort that um, it's going to require for you to leave something that's not working for you. Right. And, um, or to set limits that it's, it's not, um, I've never, I've rarely met anyone that uh, sets a limit with another person and the other person loves it. People don't like to be controlled. People don't like to have limits set with them. And sometimes it's a really important thing to do, right? Uh, so accepting that discomfort in the service of your values of caring for yourself. And that's where, you know, also bringing in um, another process, which is perspective taking. Because Oftentimes we um, don't take the perspective. We don't get behind the eyes of another person. Getting behind the eyes of somebody that you struggle with. What's it like to be them? And um, getting behind the eyes of maybe um, someone that else is being in impacted by your relationship with this person. So there's other processes that you can bring on board to help you in navigating a difficult relationship. Those are the questions that I came with today, but... I wanted to close out and ask if there's anything you'd like to add on to our conversation you feel like is important for people to know. Well, I'm just curious about you. What interested you in, in ACT and which parts of it are do you think are applicable for you in your life? I really like the approach that you discussed in the beginning, that psychology is normally about changing our thoughts and that ACT takes this approach instead of looking at them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I've found in my personal mindfulness meditation, yoga practice that has been so beneficial for me is becoming more of the observer to my own life. Um, I used to just stick and attach to a lot of really difficult thoughts and um, to the past or worries about the future. And so bringing in that idea too of being present um, has really impacted my own tribulations with anxiety. And um, it's, yeah, so I, I really connected to those aspects of it. Yeah, sometimes you can just see that train, you know, the anxiety train of thought and choosing to just observe it, watch it pass on by without getting on it because it is so, it's so painful and you know where it goes, like, you know, where it will take you, but it's so tempting to just get in and start being on the worry loop or for folks that struggle with depression, be on the rumination loop. And it's really freeing to see that you can observe your thoughts. You don't have to fight them. And actually sometimes fighting them make makes them worse. You don't have to suppress them. You don't have to make them go away. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll, it's cringeworthy when I go into a, a meditation or yoga class and the teacher says, okay, just for three minutes, just don't think about anything. Because what we know <laughs> from psychology research is that actually that is called the thought suppression effect and it results in you thinking more. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the allowing yourself to, you know, have thoughts. That's the, you know, the, our ears hear sounds, our eyes see things, our nose smells things and our thought, our brain thinks things. That's just what a human brain does. Um, so being able to be the observer of that is uh, quite liberating. Yeah, definitely. And 
Um, I, I bought your book for a friend and I thought this is such a great alternative. She loves journaling and to be able to go through these prompts and have a daily regimen um, could be so helpful for someone who might not have access to a therapist. So I really appreciate that resource as well. Yeah, it's a great way to walk through the six processes and you can do it on your own time. And not everyone wants to go to therapy or needs to be in therapy, but all of us can continue to evolve, right? Like that's that's part of the human longing. We long to evolve and grow and, you know, learn about ourselves and build competency and all those things. So um, the Act Daily Journal can be helpful with that. And then I also have a podcast, Your Life in Process, that I interview thought leaders and scientists and spiritual teachers and interesting folk as well. And that's a great resource as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. And is there anything else um, as we close out that you would just recommend for people who are on this growth journey and uh, need some tools just for their personal practice to do at home? I I like just having small rituals that, um, you know, rituals different than a routine. A ritual is a, a practice that, that you repeat because it honors something, right? And so it can be a small ritual. It can be your morning coffee. Um, I have a coffee ritual every morning where I make my coffee and I have a few books that are my books that I will read and reread for life. <laughs> a few Pema Chodron, <laughs> you know, numbers that I could read forever and still need them. And, you know, starting there and then having or having an evening ritual or having a midday ritual, but maybe choosing a, a little pocket of time to come back to yourself and come back to the moment and honor something, you know, honor being present. And then that will, I think, spread into your day and you can expand it. I mean, you can, you know, ritualize things and make them very long rituals. As we know from contemplative practice, they can be hours, but starting small as a gift to yourself. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to be here with you.